I just want to pay um, homage to your blurry background screen. There's a little bit of effect action, special effects on the Skype. I'm going to rate you five stars, I think. <laughs> How do you know that where I live just isn't blurry? This is true. This is maybe I'm <laughs> yeah. drunk. Am I drunk? I'm, I in a, I'm in a blurry house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just part of what they offer on, in the real estate market up in Canberra. Absolutely, like it's uh, it's shit, but we'll like uh, we'll, we'll make it, we'll blur it out. It's easier for the politicians to get away with whatever they're getting away with if you can't see it. So. Absolute absolute privacy protection. Where were you? Oh, it's at the Blurry Hotel. Which one? Yeah. actually want to know why do you think that you're on this podcast because there's so many different levels to you i want to know why do you think you're on here i am trying to get the word out i'm filming my first album uh on the 29th of october at the canberra theater in the courtyard studio and i am trying to just get the word out uh do some presses and uh, talk it up a bit and uh, try to fill that place out and to the, the people that can't make it i hope you buy it when it comes out I didn't know that bit. I hadn't researched that bit. So you've thrown me a like a red herring. Tell me about this album. What type of album? Been doing stand up since my first open mic for about eight years, maybe nine years now, and I've kind of been churning through the same material. I'm really proud of where the hour act has gotten up to. It's mm-hmm. over three hundred jokes that I'm really proud of. But I've noticed that I can't. I've got a bit of writer's block at the moment, and I feel like I need to publish these jokes that I've got in order to clean the slate of my yes. head because I'm in a bit of procrastination in search of perfection at the moment. I keep trying to alter, oh, what's a different tag I can do here? How can I talk about my mum in a different way here? And I've been in that sort of zone for about two years and I really just need to get these out, get them published so I can't go back and edit them anymore. It's really good. It's not going to get much better, but it's sort of that procrastination in search of perfection that I'm stuck in now. And I'm at a point where I'm extremely happy with with the set. I've gotten some really good reviews. I've uh, performed uh, the hour in in Melbourne, uh, in a few other places, uh, Woomagama. Uh, Woomagama. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, interesting. Um, I don't even think they can pronounce the name properly half the time <laughs> there. Uh, a few times here in Canberra, uh, Canberra Comedy Festival, things like that. And the idea is that uh, this will be the last Canberra show of this show. I'll probably try to do a full run at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival next year just to kind of farewell it and give as many people the chance to see it as possible. But the uh, the recording will be happening October 29th, Canberra Theatre. So just for people that maybe aren't so au fait with the inner workings of the comedic brain, Luke, when you say that you were feeling a little bit stuck because of the old material, was it just an obsession over perfecting that or was it also if i go out and do these new new jokes live they don't get the reaction that maybe the really tuned and honed jokes do because i know i mean i'm a very complete amateur compared to yourself with stand-up but i know getting a laugh is infinitely more comfortable and better than getting dead silence it's extremely safe i'm in in a real safe zone at the moment uh i know what works and i've ironed at the in my opinion, the perfect wording or timing of these specific sequence of words. And it's 
uh, it's killing most of the time, not to toot my own horn, but it's like it, over eight years, it's it's getting there. It's the misdirection is there, but it is a safety blanket for myself at the moment. I'm like, wow, why would I go ride a whole new 10 minutes and risk eating crap uh, when I know I've got this <laughs> this gold where I can just sort of get the endorphin rush and uh, straight away. So very much selfishly for positive attention towards myself, I'm sticking with the old stuff, but that's exactly what's given me the writer's block I've, I've assessed. So need to burn off the dead wood and let people have this product that's coming out and then uh, see if I can you know, do it again and again. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of where, where it's coming from. There's also a worry, isn't there, if if you don't get it recorded, like you need to free up space, right? That's a lot mm. of – 300 different jokes like rapid fire. My brain's still hitching on that. I a, just can't even conceptualise that. Is a lot of like active mental space to, mm. to take up. So it's almost like you need to square it off the ledger and go, righto, it's safe over there. If I need to revisit it, I can because it's recorded. I know that that's there. And then you can move on to the next creative realm of your life, I suppose. Yeah, 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 100% right. It's uh, it's a case of I've been doing a lot of chunking to remember that, mm-hmm. but because of that I've almost drawn myself into a box. So, for example, I've got my opening five minutes is about drugs and alcohol, and I know that that links through about three separate jokes towards the end. It leads into technology and, and phone apps, and because of that I'm – for years, it's been like that. It's okay. So I go drugs, alcohol into technology and phone apps. And it's almost like a what started off as sort of a bit of a guide. It's like been locked in that this is the order now. And it's almost cutting off a bit of creativity to go, okay, but well, what if I wanted to do a technology and phone apps joke when I'm talking about my eight stepdads later on? And it's like, no, 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 I've got a blocker. So it's <laughs> one of those things. Would it be um, sort of like, the moment you've got a song with all your verses, right, and then you you go in and you go, right, I, I'm going to do a remix of Fantasy and put it with big, big energy or something like that and start, like, blending it into different, get some new artists involved, turn yeah. it into a bit of a rap, wiggity wiggity, like, just <laughs> get all the things. You can't really remix that perfect flow, can you? Or can you? You'd have to pass I, you know it to someone you defi- else. You, you definitely could change it up. And that there's like, if I risked it to change up the order and I could probably get a better reaction, there is a chance that that could happen. But then that opens a whole other ca- can of worms where it's just like, oh, okay, now do I spend five years reordering all 20, what will be the 20 tracks of the album and see what flows better instead of what I've chunked, which I feel like is pretty good getting good reactions but i just like um you're absolutely right but i'm re- really scared to open that door because it's uh yeah i, I feel like we're just like yeah, it's, the album wouldn't come out ever you don't want to be the guy that wrote jingle bells and just keeps running on that no. that royalty exactly. for the rest of your life <laughs> yeah spot spot on i feel like i've got a it's going to be a 20 track album uh it's about all my bits they consist of about 18 jokes yeah. So that kind of cuts off nicely. It's how I metronome myself, how I time myself out there. I'm like, okay, so uh, if I go to a, an open mic or I'm trying five minutes or ten minutes, I know that's that's five minutes, that's about 36 jokes, so about two tracks that I can 
put in there and then again double that you know um closer to 70 80 for a 10 minute set so again it's a all the case of, i've got other jokes that aren't going to be on this album but it's because they don't fit cleanly into i don't have 18 jokes about that topic yeah yet yeah <laughs> how long have you been planning this so funnily enough you're talking about the the rap stuff before when i was 22 i had the mother of all hangovers it was like an event and you know that proper post hangover depression plus you know like you yeah. get sort of like the, the young blues that a lot of people in their, their early yeah. 20s get and um i was just really not satisfied with uh you know like if i got hit by a bus that day a it would be good because the hangover would be gone yeah but i was like a, if i had to like talk about the life i had up until then i wouldn't have been sort of proud of, of that. So as corny as it is, actually, to get through this hangover, had a lot of Barocca and water, but I wrote out a, a bucket list that I could say, all right, hit by a bus, I can say, okay, I've done these specific things, come up with a list of 10 things, and one of them was to release an album. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be a stand-up album at the time. I thought I was going to get into hip-hop or something because I'm a huge, huge rap fan. And uh, and do something like that. Um, absolutely terrible at it. <laughs> but I mean, I was like, okay. But the bucket list still stands. I need to release something. And uh, and so yeah, in a way, this album had been planned from then, but then having no idea that it would lead into stand up and things like that. So as far as explicitly planned, COVID uh, knocked it around a bit. It definitely has been on the radar for about two years, but it definitely wasn't ready two years ago, but I was like it needed to sort of start planning to come out. For people at home listening, like two years to invest in tweaking that amount of material, which I know is 300 jokes, right, but it's only an hour of your life if people think, like they'll just pot it in and go, man, like – that's a ridiculous amount of dedication to the craft, like to put two years into something. It's funny you say about the the bucket list thing. I had a thing when I was sick that if I died, I didn't think enough people would come to my funeral or I wouldn't, the yeah. same sort of thing. I'm like, oh, it's not, not enough that I'd be known of and I probably wouldn't get a parade yet. So I have to make sure that I've, <laughs> I've done that. Seeking parades. Seeking parade, parades. But that amount of investment into your craft I don't can you just please elaborate for people because I think the common conception unless you're someone like me that's been privy to to people watching and the amount of work that goes into comedy would think you're just getting up and you just write a few jokes and it's not like that at all can you just like really hone in to, to someone that's not been in the world and just sort of turns up and watches a show? What what level of attention needs to be respected towards that? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think that per- perception is out there because some people can do that. It's rare, but some people literally just get up and have funny bones, so to speak. And we They're don't just... like those people. <laughs> no, I, I hate them too. Yeah. I, I get it. I, uh, very resentful, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, really the best stand-ups, I feel like, uh, they can make you forget that there's a formula there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they will write and 
The truth about what funny is, it's really something unexpected. So that's the formula that uh, you thought it was one thing and it's leading to another thing. And that's an oversimplification, but it is the truth. It is uh, a misdirection and that equals funny. And it's interesting. uh, The ha-ha moment is very similar in humans to the aha moment when you notice something that's, oh, it's actually this. Yeah. It's like you're getting something and it's like, oh, I got that, especially with the type of stuff I do and the stuff that I um, sort of watched growing up is one-liners. It's English language is so malleable. You take people on a journey where they think it's this way, but it's also, oh, it's this. That's pretty funny, unexpected, but also you get to feel a bit smart for getting it too. Yeah. If that makes sense. I really like so that. that. Yeah. So the aha and the ha-ha moment are very similar. Um, I've found. But yeah, Jerry Seinfeld, for example, uh, he didn't release his first special until after Seinfeld came out. He had started working on that set in the 80s. Yeah, right. And so the sitcom came and went. And then in the year 2000, maybe 2001, he, uh, he finally brought it out and recorded it because he felt it was ready then. That was when the airplane peanuts joke was ready so like i've talked about how i've taken a long time like guys like that are real perfectionists and yeah there's a real labor of love you put as much work into it as you want to really um but a guy like me because it's one line is because every word needs to be precise i spend a lot more time on the words whereas a storyteller comedian can kind of you know they can just hit, hit the beats if that if that makes sense which is not to uh not to look down on that at all. Some of my favourite comedians are storytellers. I'm just jealous that I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think talking of a great storyteller, but also someone that's a deceptively great writer, I think last time we saw each other, Luke, I had just seen the new Andrew Schultz special, which right. I- which is truly special. Like there's not many other than Bill Burr that I can think of recently where the special she would say, oh, that's in that Chris Rock Eddie Murphy mm. kind of realm of, oh, those specials are actually truly special, but the Andrew Schultz one is extraordinary. And he looks like he's just doing it on his ear. But he's also talked about he spent 16 years studying not just comedy and doing shows every day in New York, but also what makes a great special. And it's almost yeah. like a spectacle. Like He got introed by the guy that does the intros for all of the biggest boxing matches and he had all of his friends open for him and there was lights and it was craziness. It felt like a real show. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, spot on. My And I try to make uh, – novelty is really important, I think, where it can't just be a set when you're calling something a, a special or, or an album. We've got uh, – Lukaki Party is the album and it's been the show that's um, been, been promoted. And so we have um, like party hats for the audience when they get there. There's an opening presentation that goes for about four minutes as well. It's, like, it's, a, it's a whole thing leading up to the actual jokes just to – not to pad out but just create this uh, – try to tick off all the senses, so to speak. Yeah, the atmosphere. Um, and uh, and uh, you get a lot of buy-in from the audience that way who might – Otherwise, at the 45-minute mark, might be a bit fed up of one-liners. Yeah, so you're, you're essentially, and we'll talk maybe about where people can find tickets and stuff later, but you're trying to create a true show here, not just a set. Yeah. It's not just you doing a set on a bigger scale. There's a show element. No, there's a, there's a lot of work put into that. Yeah, this is 
a party that everyone's invited to. It's the Lukaki party and this final the final Canberra show is happening October 29th, Saturday, Canberra Theatre Courtyard Studio. Plug, plug, plug. So, um, so just while we're on that topic, who's opening these shows? And just as a follow-on from that, I know in the past that a couple of the guys from Wagga have been involved in your shows, Dave Kaneen, for example. What's your connection to this area and why would you have them come and open shows you've done in the past in Canberra? If you like us, like I like us, get onto punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee. David Kinnean will be opening this show. He's opened for me in in the past. Uh, he's amazing. And as long as he wants to do these uh, opens, um, I would have him open for me everywhere. You know, if we didn't have real life of jobs, you know, this is what I hope, you know, would be doing, you know, around the country. Um, I think his style uh, complements mm. mine a lot because there's no chance that we would be stepping on our material at all. It's a, almost a complete contrast in styles. And I've never... It, Australia-wide, I don't think there's a better MC. Oh, he's um, extraordinary. Yeah, he's very yeah. good. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, uh, Riverina area, um, uh, Wagga, uh, Aubrey, Wodonga, uh, I started doing gigs in the area. 2017, I want to say. I started with uh, Off the Rails Comedy. Uh, Jade Fitzgerald was hosting those. Moved uh, to do uh, Dane's Rooms with a Riverina Comedy Club and... There's some energy about these areas that is really special. Uh, it's different than Melbourne. It's different than Canberra. It's different than than Sydney and Wollongong and uh, these, a lot of the other types. There's, uh, there's a hunger there for it, and there's also a levity of people get that it's jokes and they just want to have a laugh, and I think that's disappearing in a lot of the big cities. Like, you're getting a lot of like sanctimonious, uh, you know, they want to be upset on behalf of the group types instead of just not forcing you to like anything, but yeah. they'll be like, oh, yeah, they, they want to be the vanguard of of acceptability. And maybe I'm a bit old school, but stand-up shouldn't be about sort of acceptability. It should be about funny. And the last – one of the worst things you can do in a pretty dark world is, you know, make people feel bad for laughing at something. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there's a real um, – getting back to the question uh, – Wagga, Aubrey, Wodonga, I think there's a real energy there that that pure spirit of wanting to go out for a laugh is there and strong. And uh, that's why, you know, I have no issue, you know, doing the three, three and a half hour drive on a weeknight to come back the same night to go to work the next day. Like it's a, it's a thrill and it's a, it's a privilege to perform in front of those people. What Do you think that that's because we're a bit backward and we haven't really jumped on a cause yet? <laughs> we're just like, hey. Just, we're the monkeys. Just entertain us, please. Throw us some peanuts. That's all we need. <laughs> Backwards. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think uh, everything's gone too far the other way, if yeah. I'm honest. Uh, everywhere else, I think uh, people have forgotten how to have a laugh. And I think there's got been this idea in the, the comedy zeitgeist over the last 15 years that um, it's very cause-driven, and I love that. Like, it's it's I'm using this platform to say my piece to represent my people to get a message out there and i think that's great some of the best stand-up has been done by that but it's not only that you're not getting that with luke burning with Lukaki party i'm just there trying to misdirect your brain give you a ha-ha and an aha moment and make you laugh it's it's there's no higher cause for me and i think that there's still room for that too luke i want to like go backwards like 
back yeah. to your very first stand-up gig. Can you yep. just tell us about what led to it, how it felt? How did you present yourself because yeah. you have such a strong visual image as well? <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolutely. I can remember. I believe it was November 2013, Smith's Bookshop in Canberra. It was an open mic. I'd been to one open mic before that just to watch, just to get a vibe for what was happening. A few months prior to that, uh, I went on a huge Stuart Francis and Jimmy Carr binge. And uh, I, there's a just great one-liner comedians. And uh, I could see the crossword style, like, formula there. And I just started accidentally coming up with jokes when I was bored at work. I was like, oh, how could this word be misinterpreted? And I, I wrote it down and <laughs> and I had a list of uh, 15, 15 jokes. And I was like, wow, that's... That'll, that'll be five minutes. Like, that's, that's crazy. Maybe maybe I could give this a uh, stand-up thing a go. So I went and uh, drank too much beer, extremely nervous. Uh, uh, jeans that were too big, T-shirt that was too small for me type of presentation. <laughs> uh, probably like a, like a buzz cut at the time. And, yeah, got up, shaking the mic, petrified, pissing myself, and told these 12 jokes and then realised, uh, oh shit, there's three and a half minutes left. <laughs> like, what am, what am I doing? Like, and I'd say about a quarter of the audience was like really supportive. They were like getting what I was going for with these. And some of these jokes have survived to this album, by the way. Some of yeah, them, about three, have uh, stood. But that quarter crowd that was uh, supportive enough was like enough for me to sort of go, okay. I'll, I'll try this at least again. Like yeah. if it was a complete death, I, I don't know if I would have come back. Okay, so let me just ask, and I'm so happy that Mel brought this up. I didn't know that was going to come up, but you obviously had a feeling, as I always did, that I know that I can make my friends die laughing, but my way of interacting with the world is pretty low energy. And for a long time, the idea, because I loved Chris Rock was my idol in the 90s. I liked him yeah. as much as I liked Pink Floyd and the band Tool. There was them and then there was Chris Rock specials. But I yeah. never could envisage ever being able to get in front of people and make them laugh without a high energy factor. Whether you're yeah. doing one-liners or telling stories, it was just something I never thought. I, I could make my friends laugh because they know me. They know mm. that I'm not being serious when I say things that sound really horrendous. But how yeah. are you, how are you approaching that gig and those early gigs from a presentation point of view, because you said that you were really nervous and you were shaking. Now, mm. you, now you have such a refined and confident way on stage. Did you have any worries that maybe you weren't built for stand-up, even though you had started doing it? Yeah, definitely. It's It was weird because it was really rough material. Like, not only was it not refined, it's, it's but not it was rough like- now. No, this is- Sorry, I thought, you meant, I thought you meant blue. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I do mean that. Like it was, it was extremely dark. Like, it's like compared to what I do now, this is like jokes for your grandma compared to what I was doing like at the beginning. <laughs> okay. Because I, I was watching again a lot of Jimmy Carr, a lot of that early Jimmy Carr, a lot of Frankie Boyle, and they just go so hard in the dark stuff. And another sort of lever in the brain is not just the aha aha moment. But it's also the release of tension 
and you can apply tension by like adding like a taboo subject or having like a taboo punchline. Mm. And so it's like that, oh shit, like what whatever's happened here. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, the formula in my head then is misdirected one line with the worst possible subject matter or payoff sort of thing. And that was very much the formula for my first year. Like, and and then I was like, oh, why am I not getting bookings? This is weird. <laughs> What's going on? And it took me a while to realize if you're going to go dark, it needs to be as funny as it is dark. Like the mis the the misinterpretation needs to be at least as amusing as the heaviness of the of the punchline. Otherwise, it's kind of just been an edge lord. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You just did shock value. You just yeah, learning exactly. on shock value rather than actually clever and wit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, did you get a massive buzz from that first show? Because I remember, I think I've told Mel this before, that even though I only did three minutes at a bookshop too, actually, thanks to Jade Fitzgerald, and I never had a buzz like quite like I did from doing stand-up that first time, even though I sucked. Mm. <laughs> like, I did, I think I got two laughs in five minutes or whatever it yeah. was, and then I didn't sleep the whole night. <laughs> I Very very similar. I, I had a, over 400 professional wrestling matches before my first stand-up gig. And uh, it was completely different because it was uh, you're on your own out there and it's on you if it does well or poorly. Uh, and you can't, I can't blame my, my partner or uh, say that, oh, yeah, the grand final's on. That's why no one's here and stuff. It's like, no, these people are in this room. They're giving you real-time feedback on the words you're saying. Like, it's uh, – and they can't even help that they don't laugh or do laugh. Right, like it's the most brutal form of feedback straight away, and that's why it's like so good. But yeah, uh, I remember you know finishing my set and yeah, like still shaking, but it was a different type of shaking. I was buzzing, I felt like I was like a B Rabbit in Eight Mile, you know, just you know, just killed it at the show, the hip hop shop or something, <laughs> and uh, got the bus home and uh, and yeah, tried to write some more. I remember after about six months, I, I built up to about 70 jokes. And again, my timing was still up. I had no metronome. I was always going over or under by like a minute or so. But I thought, oh, 70 jokes, that'll be enough for uh, for an hour. And then and now we're here nine years later and it's like, okay, no, you need 360 for the hour. So. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad that you brought up wrestling by yourself because I was going to do the whole like really backwards <laughs> So 2013, your first open mic. Let's reflect back on to 2008, where the adrenaline junkie of Luke went over to the Storm Wrestling Academy <laughs> over in Canada. What and where did this come from? <laughs> I was a huge wrestling junkie as a, as a kid. Um, could not get enough of it. I liked it more than, than stand-up, like, as a kid growing up. And I was very, yeah, like... There was no question about it. Like, this is what I wanted to do, you know, for when I was very young. And uh, I kept telling my mum, you know, it's like, no, no, I'm going to do it. She's like, no, there's no money in wrestling. Like, leave it alone. And uh, like, no, no, no I'm, I'm going to do it. And uh, a lot of my friends, you know, going through puberty grew, grew out of it. But I, I didn't. Uh, and then when I was 16 in, in 2004, I found a, a wrestling school in, in Canberra that was putting on local shows and stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible so i started to go a train and had a couple of matches over the first 
couple of years in in Canberra. It was just yeah, awesome. Like it was like exactly what I wanted to to be. Like it didn't matter if I was yeah, in Aladala or Aubrey or something in front of eighteen people getting paid, you know, a handshake and a hot dog. Uh, it was like, yeah, I'm performing. I, I look ridiculous with my, my fake tan and my tights on, but it's uh, no, it was, I was living my best life. But I wanted to give it a, a proper crack and uh, go train with Lance Storm in the Storm Wrestling Academy. Uh, so I had a, uh, I had my first like proper job, like good job in 2007, where I could actually save up some money to go. Applied. Uh, and yeah, got accepted and yeah, spent uh, three months, uh, you know, training pro wrestling every day and then working with the pro wrestling promotions in, in Calgary. It was uh, amazing. So, was it Storm Wrestling? Sorry, Academy? Storm Wrestling Academy. What's their relevance? Because I followed wrestling, particularly during that Goldberg run at, in the WCW, but then I kind of, then I've yeah. kind of faded off it. What's Storm Wrestling Academy's relevance to wrestling in North America? Yeah, so, uh, Lance Storm is a very uh, storied professional wrestler. He was one of the last pro wrestlers properly trained by the Hart. So the great Hart family, you know, Stu Hart, Bret Hart, Owen Hart. He had travelled the world, uh, again, made it to ECW, WCW uh, in 99 and then in WWE for, for five years. Before he left WWE, he was also their head trainer for their developmental system and uh, decided that he wanted to just you know, his wrestling career was over. I wanted to live in Calgary, but to have his, have his own school. Everyone sort of traveled from, you know, South Africa, Japan. Uh, you'd meet people from all walks of life going to Calgary on this wrestling pilgrimage to get trained by one of the best and who had that knowledge of what the WWE was after to, to get in there. So, yeah, it was surreal. Jeez, you talk about, like, your nipples freezing off in Canberra. <laughs> what about... How did your nipples go in Calgary. <laughs> in Calgary with Lycra? Again, That's the next level. Technically colder, but it was not malicious. I felt like it was just <laughs> Mother Nature. And I was like, yeah, this is Mother Nature coldest, whereas Canberra hates you. Yeah, <laughs> right. I've got. So you were here, in, you mentioned Aubrey, and I'm not sure, like our show tends to like to have a link in some way to this region. So you've done comedy here, but you also did wrestle here it was in 2012 that you you came to I Aubrey, so, yeah. i think and, and did a bit of a match are you still wrestling with your mate kane who came down with you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so we uh, we we run the slam pro wrestling league in canberra now so we we're, we're partners on that um with uh uh with our other mate dan and so yeah no it's it's going really well yeah so still 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 going at it my other question is What's the go with all these name changes with your wrestling? Yes. Like, <laughs> it's, you're not, it's not like you're like Prince, formerly known as like Prince. <laughs> or yeah. You've got quite a few different. So the first one that I read and I was like, yeah, I'm digging this, is the Jaguar Kid. Yep, yep. How do you come up with wrestling names, firstly? Is that something that's just a throwaway line that someone else throws to you and you catch it or is it deliberate no or it's a bit of column a column b so when i first started they wanted to call me uh lightning luke watts just because i was a smaller and faster at a gymnastics background i've got um, that one here too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so that's what i was going under until 2009 2009 i went to japan to do some wrestling work and the promotion i was working with is very uh 
it was a cross between sort of Japanese style and Mexican Lucha Libre style. And so the, the big thing was the, the mask characters and whatnot. Yeah. And so I, I came up with the Jaguar kit from there and brought that back to Australia and did that for 10 years. So uh, that did serve me really well. Uh, and finally, um, 2020, I want to say, um, reverted back to, to Luke Watts, but the moniker, the hope from the top rope which is, uh, you know, the glorious blonde-haired mustachio you see before you and, now. And a tremendous name. Is it true, Luke, <laughs> that I'm not sure is it Mucha Libre or however you pronounce Lucha it. Mucha Libre. Yeah, how you pronounce the Mexican style and the Japanese style. From what I've heard just through pop culture really is that they have a much stronger delineation in their wrestling characters between the good and bad or the heroes and the villains. Is that true that you really get – asked to play a certain role in those kind of promotions? Japan and Mexico are very different. Uh, so Japan, they they all know what pro wrestling is, like that it's they're, they're, they're not fools, the, the fans, but uh, they treat it very much like a sport. It's covered in all the sporting magazines, things like that, and the crowd are very uh, respectful. They don't really buy the classic hero-villain narrative. They, they kind of do, but it's far more... Like sports teams, you go for your favorite, yeah, and uh, and uh, yeah, but they're very like quiet audience, and they'll just sit there and they'll they'll clap instead of you know just yell and go go wild and stuff. Whereas uh, Mexico, it almost goes the other way. Lucha Libre is very much about the good guys and the bad guys, and what the uh, the masks represent and whatnot. And uh, you know there will be guys that you know uh, have the likeness of like uh, classic Aztec gods and stuff, and uh, as tech figures and that's kind of culturally come up through, you know, the over 130 Lucha Libre history and it's very much entwined in the culture. It's like, yes, you have this mask. It's an honour to represent this part of our culture in this art form. So, yeah, it's uh, every, everyone sort of has a different take on it. It's 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 a very weird, weird sport that, you know, no matter where you go, like it all where, from where it started back in the 1800s to – where it's gone in its respective domains across the world. It's a, it's it's just funny how it's changed. So with your promotion that you're a co-booker of and organiser, where do you draw inspiration? What are you trying to create for the local Canberra market and that surrounding area? Like what are you looking to to base your promotion on? Yeah, so our promotion is very much inspired by Memphis wrestling, uh, Jerry Lawler stuff from the 80s. It's trying to keep it simple and leave the fans wanting more, have no shows that drag on. Um, we are very clear, good guys and bad guys, but it's also very very athletically based. So no no scrubs, so to speak. You know, you come to a slam show, you're getting, you're getting the good stuff. But, yeah, no, it's uh, it's feuds. It's not overly niche or, uh, or, or pandering. It's like... Pro Wrestling 101, but, like, turned up to, to 11, back to basics. Uh, yeah, the guy yelling at the camera, you know, telling the crowd to shut up, that their, <laughs> their hometown stinks, and then yeah, the guy getting, getting beat up for it. So, you're an athlete, obviously. Sorry, Mel. You have a background in gymnastics, but I was privileged enough to see a couple of the local Australian promotions at my old job setting up and rehearsing during the day. The athleticism really is off the charts, and you might not expect that if you've never been to one of these Australian-based promotions, the level of athleticism. 
what level of gymnast were you and how much did that just transition directly into wrestling for you? Uh, I represented Canberra in the the national level uh, up until I was about 16 um, when I just sort of got fed up with it. I never really liked gymnastics. I did it because my friend was doing it, but I liked it because I could do wrestling moves there. Like at the, at the, and uh, my coach would be very upset with that. And then um, as soon as I found the, the wrestling school, I, I quit gymnastics. But uh, like, it's, thank God I did do gymnastics before I did wrestling because everything that it gets me over is, uh, you know, building up to my shooting star press finishing move, which is, you know, forward moving backflip off the top rope. And uh, yeah, everything in between, it definitely, you know, helped me, you know, know my body, be able to brace, be able to, you know, uh, hold people up and be be light going up on things. So no, it, was, uh, it was everything, really. So what about the feel of Lycra, is it, that you just really love and you're just looking for avenues in your life that you can hey, – like, are you going to be a, is a cyclist? Is Lukaki party a party? Yeah, this is like this is the next stage for, for Luke after he can't, you know, wrestle. Is this going to be, you know, just going to be a bike rider or something like that, just a leisurely Sunday ride? What, what about Lycra do you like, the feel? Look, I, Explain I it to me. I haven't paid for enough therapy to really work out what the proper answer to that is, but uh, I definitely, the commonalities between stand-up and wrestling is uh, getting strangers to clap and cheer for you. It's uh, So I think there's something to that, and I think that's something that's gone back to sort of my childhood where it's just like, yeah, just positive attention of the anonymous is what I'm uh, striving for. Well, that's, that's the best form of feedback because I've often said to my, like, friends and that if you give me a compliment i'm not taking that like heavily because i'm like you're my friend you're supposed to be nice to me (laughs) whereas an unsolicited amount of feedback or like someone's actually come up to you that you don't know and said wow that was that was unreal like that's the sort of stuff that i take to heart because it's an effort for them to do it in the first place it's unsolicited and they've got no need to do it other than the fact that they want to share. You're absolutely right. I've, I've had these talks with people, you know, many places are about a un what's the what's the what's a good way to put it? Uh, unqualified compliments. Yeah. I'm just like uh, like are you you're gassing me up for some reason, and maybe you have good intentions behind it, but I feel like you're prepping me up. I uh, I've got a big fear in this world of, of being conned, and it's something that con men con men do. They they gas you up straight away and be like, oh yeah, yeah you're like. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, where's the where's the bait and switch here? Like, what's going on? Where, is, is, you're asking me for money now? When's the loan coming? <laughs> like, yep. You're an artist as well. What's the go with all these things? I feel like you're an ultimate slashy. What do you mean, artist? You Now, is this a take the Mickey webpage that you've put up? Or is it someone else called Luke Burney that's... No, 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 So I've just registered my website, but it's still got all the default things on there. Okay. So I haven't, like... So you haven't been doing art since you were kinder or anything like that? No, 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 no. You know, when you first said you've been at the start of this interview, I was like, is he joking or not joking about this album? Because you were so deadpan when I asked the question. <laughs> I was like, 
I don't know if this is part of a like real weird scenario, and I'm about Very to just go the mi- the misdirect. You're talking about misdirect. I was like, where's he leading with this? What's going on? Where's this it's album this coming from? Impressionist, uh, yeah. Because no, I was no, going to no, say, no, what I'm... a great artist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. And the, vlo- mean, yes, and the vlog's coming and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah all, all, these, all these things. I was like, Jesus, what, what's going on here? He's, he's uh, really, he really tries his hand at everything. I love how oh, semi-disconnected Mel is from the internet that she's never actually seen an in-progress webpage. <laughs> nah. That's no. great. Keep <laughs> nah. my head in. If you guys know anybody who can do this stuff, I appreciate the hookup. Like, I'm, I'm terrible with the, the digital side. Like, it's, it's very, very frustrating for me. Is that where you sort of get to the point and go, I don't need to know how to do all the things. I can just shift that over to another thing and be okay with that? I'd love to delegate. I'd like to pay somebody to do it for me. Like I have no problem like, parting money to not have this like mental overhang of like, oh, there's my ticket link working. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just I ne- you know how we're talking about it, like being hindered by perfection. With some things, I'm just if an opportunity comes, I'm like just like all for it. It's usually if it involves someone else though. If it's something personal that I just need to motivate myself, I just go in a a loop. Yeah. Of war and peace. I've talked about it before. Like I get all like I write all the chapters of war and peace, and I'm like, oh, that was. Geez, that was difficult. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're, you're, you're thinking about, yeah, you know, you're deciding on the font for two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I need to be better at just failing. Again, go, yeah, like I said, like I think it just, at some point you got to acknowledge that the work that's been done on it has been done on it, push it out there, and then if you need to incorporate feedback later, yeah. then do it. But like a, that's a big thing in like the consultant work that I do to pay the bills. It's just like, I always say 80% is good enough and just push it out there and then everyone else is going to pick it apart even if you think it's perfect anyway. So just get it out there. And even the if it is and even if it is perfect, people will still find something to pick apart. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And, and you know, I just, with things other than, you know, stand-up and wrestling, I just go, okay, this isn't, I frame it as an opportunity for people to collaborate. You know, so like, you know, come, <laughs> I love come fix this with me. Yeah, it's, all, it's all word games. <laughs> An opportunity <laughs> to collaborate. That's I like good. that. Yeah. I'm going to put this shit out there, guys. This is an opportunity for us to collaborate and make me better, basically. That's very clever. 